0: Today's first reading is from Hebrew scriptures, Exodus 34, verses 29 through 35, the shining face of Moses. Moses came down from Mount Sinai. As he came down from the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant in his hand, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, The skin of his face was shining, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke with them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, the Israelites would see the face of Moses, that the skin of his face was shining, and Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. Our second reading is from the New Testament, Luke 9, verses 28 through 36, the Transfiguration. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and in those days told no one any of the things that they had seen.
1: Morning. I'm so happy to be here with you all this morning to worship um, I walked in your building and felt a little bit of a homecoming you know in an odd way I grew up uh, attending a church in upstate New York near the Catskill Mountains where my father was the pastor and it was also a valley church and it was also an A-frame that was built with respect to the natural setting outside ours did not have a big window out front we were built back into the side of a mountain and we looked like a snowplow coming out of the front of the mountain. So I walked in and thought, this is beautiful. It's an A-frame. We're taking into account what is outdoors. I feel very much at home. Um, I'm a Presbyterian minister whose husband took a tech job about six years ago now that moved us to Silicon Valley. And we discovered when we got here that I wasn't going to have a call right away. And we also discovered about a year and a half later that we were having a surprise third child. And then we discovered that childcare is not covered by a pastor's salary in general in this area. And I discovered that it's really fun to be a stay-at-home mom in Northern California, particularly this winter when I hear messages from friends in Chicago that sound like help signals. And I'm reminded that I am very fortunate not to have to put mittens on people which if you have raised children in the upper Midwest, you know is pretty much the bane of any parent's existence. <laughs> Will you please join me in a prayer for illumination? Holy Spirit, move among us strongly. Breathe into us. Open our eyes that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. But most of all, soften and open our hearts that we may know, that we may truly feel and know what it is that you would say to us today. Amen. I'd like you to think for a moment about your spiritual ancestors. For some of us, our spiritual ancestors match up fairly neatly with our genealogical ancestors. For others of us, there are folks who were important in our spiritual formation in our lives and may not be relatives. Some of those spiritual ancestors are still alive, some of them are not. Some of them you may not know about, but if you dug a little bit, you'd learn some of the stories. I had an interesting opportunity this summer to meet some of my spiritual ancestors and learn a little bit about them. I took a rather epic road trip across the United States with my three kids. I left my husband home, he didn't have time off, and I said, that's it, we're hitting the road. Um, My father freaked out a little bit about this and wondered if this was a smart idea and so about three and a half weeks into me being on the road with these three children camping in national parks he flew to Colorado and met us and on our drive to Chicago from there we went through the tiny town in north central Kansas where his family had lived until the Great Depression when they and many others in that town cleared out and moved. His family left for Los Angeles, and my, so my father grew up in Southern California. But his family was very much from this little town in Kansas called Lucter. <clears throat> Lucter is not there anymore. Maybe two farm families stayed and now own all the property there. And it was a scrappy little community of Dutch immigrant farmers, and almost every family had left. But still there is the Lucter Christian Reformed Church, which it turns out is actually in pretty good shape. There seem to be a number of families who have really determined that they're going to keep this church going. And it's a very neat-looking white clapboard building built in the 1920s. The grass is meticulously maintained, even though around it you can see the ruins of farms that have not been inhabited for decades. And the church actually sits on a corner of my great-great-grandparents, Albertus and Fika Decker. Um, Fika is a real Dutch name. Um, it sits on a corner of their property. They donated it when the congregation was building a new building a little, um, little under 100 years ago. My grandfather actually remembers that he one day did not like what was happening in Sunday school, and so he ran away and ran to his grandma's house right around the corner. The farm is completely gone. You can only see just barely in the weeds off to the edge the patch of trees and brush where the house was and a windmill that is beginning to come down. And I stood there with my three kids and my dad, and I thought, what on earth would Bert and Fika think? Here standing, on this land that they had donated to their community to build the church was their great-grandson, my father, who is also a minister. And I thought they would be very proud, I'm sure. But I wonder what they would make of me because I'm pretty certain (laughs) that the idea of a female minister had never crossed their minds. And I like to think that now with the uh, counsel of God and Jesus, they've realized that that's okay. But a hundred years ago, I'm sure they never could have imagined. Never. In some ways, that's what this story is about. Peter and John and James, the three disciples, go up onto this mountain with Jesus and while they are there, they see something that is completely beyond what they have imagined. And as much as they might want to contain what they see, it is so far beyond their comprehension that it would bust right out of any tent that they could build over it. And so it is, in fact, it is so shocking when they finally give it their full attention. It is so shocking that it knocks them right off their feet. There is a uh, school of, of icon makers in, in Russian tradition and, and many Orthodox icons have a similar pattern to them. They're all painted fairly similarly because they're telling a story. And it's hard to see, because you have a light-filled sanctuary. But if you look really carefully, (laughs) or come and look after the service, you'll see that in this, down here below, the disciples are not just falling over and worshiping. Those are their heads toward the bottom. They have been knocked off their feet right down that mountain, and that is something that these artists in this Russian school of iconography did on purpose. It's almost as if, and if you'll excuse me for using a word that we normally only hear in church occasionally at Christmas, it's as if Jesus has knocked them flat on their asses. (laughs) They are so stunned, so stunned by what they see. The Transfiguration of Jesus is the mountaintop experience at the end of this church season that falls between Christmas and Lent. And in that time, we hear story after story about who Jesus really is. They are stories that help us to see, stories that open our eyes. You see, we start out with Jesus as a baby, and a baby is easy to understand, and not the baby itself. A baby itself is not easy to understand. But a baby is a universal thing to us and a universal symbol. We all start out as babies. We've all seen babies. I think everyone should hold a baby at some point. If you've never held a baby, you need to rectify this as soon as possible. But we all know what a baby means. It means new life and potential and possibility. And all of that is contained in this one astoundingly tiny person. But as the church we begin to see this story of jesus in the weeks after christmas and the stories begin to build up and they become stranger and stranger even the christmas story with the angels and the shepherds coming and the magi even the christmas story is strange but as jesus grows the stories become even weirder and so we wonder who is this jesus is he a precocious teenage teacher at the temple Is he an entertaining magician at a wedding party? Is he a miracle worker, a hero, a prophet, a teacher, a revolutionary? And at the culmination of all of these strange stories is the transfiguration. In fact, if you were to take out your Bible and look at Luke chapter 9 and track back, you will notice that right before this story, Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And here... In fact, the disciples get an even more astounding answer than they could have imagined. And so here at this capstone at the mountaintop, we get this big question, who is Jesus? And what exactly is God up to in this world? Now as Luke tells it, Peter and James and John accompany Jesus and they almost miss the whole thing because they are sleepy, as if their eyes almost cannot handle the brightness of Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And so it's almost as if they're in denial and their lids become heavy and they go to sleep. But somehow they come to their senses and they're able to see. And they wonder if perhaps the right response to this glory is to contain it. Now, when they say they want to build a tent or a shrine, it's really a reference to what the people of Israel did while they wandered in the desert. They built a tent, a tabernacle for God so that they could take that God who had accompanied them in cloud and in a pillar of fire and take that God and honor that God with something, with a dwelling, just as they had a dwelling for God as well. And so I don't think that Peter and James and John say this as if they're malicious or daft. This is what they know. This is how their spiritual ancestors did it. But it's when they make that suggestion that they hear the voice of God and the scene is covered up and obscured by a cloud and they are completely thrown back by the blast of it, they realize that they cannot grasp or contain who this Jesus really is and what God is doing in the world. They are knocked off their feet and they are speechless. And I love this idea that we are completely taken off of our feet by even just a little glimpse of who Jesus is and what God is up to in the world. It is a terrifying idea. But there's also a way to meet this idea with joy. The Sufi mystic Hafez wrote a poem called A One-Story House. Wrote, I am glad that my master lived in a one story house when I began to traverse the early stages of love. For when he would speak of the wonders and beauty of creation, when he began to reveal the magnificent realities of God, I could not control my happiness and would commence an ecstatic dance that almost always resulted in a tremendous encore, a dive headfirst out of his window. Hafez. The friend was very kind to you during those early years and you only broke your nose 17 times. Hafez's reaction to the magnificent realities of God is what I hope we will all strive for. But it can be dangerous to be thrown off balance by God's glory. We never know what to expect and we might be led to do the unexpected. And I'm left wondering How do we try to contain God? And if we do, might it be that we will dance right out the window of the house that we construct? Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, wrote a lovely little book about icons, and it's actually where I found this insight about the disciples being thrown back in this way. And when he reflects on the disciples' posture in this icon, he says, looking at Jesus seriously changes things. If we do not want to be changed, it is better not to look too long or too hard. And another theologian, Claudio Carvales, puts it this way, when we meet the transfigured Jesus, we are disfigured, transfigured, and refigured. I am left wondering about my own misconceptions about Jesus and his ministry. What are the things that I don't understand? What are the things that I have misunderstood? And what about God's action in the world is just completely beyond what I can imagine? And how am I trying mistakenly to contain God's glory? How does Jesus knock me flat on my rear end? And it's tempting to ask those questions and immediately look at others, the Christians who I disagree with usually, the ones who I think are too rigid, and the ones who I think have clearly put up a tent that is way too small, the Christians who I think have got it all wrong. Or alternatively, it's easier to just close my eyes and try not to be overtaken by Jesus' glory. I followed the news this week about the Methodist Church, and I listened while some close friends of mine who are Methodist ministers needed an ear to vent and to lament their frustration and grief over what their denomination had done this week. It made me realize how long it really has taken me in my own life to truly understand not only that the church shouldn't discriminate against LGBTQ folks, but also that Christ calls us to be allies and advocates for people who are marginalized. And frankly, it's very easy for me, a white-married suburban mom with a bunch of kids in a minivan, to just ignore people who are marginalized, not to stick my neck out, not to try to do anything about it. I get that more now than I did 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, but I also wonder what I haven't seen yet. What part of God's work and intention for the world is so completely incomprehensible to me that 100 years from now my spiritual descendants would be shocked? Just as Fica and Bert, my ancestors, might wonder at the church of their great-great-grandchildren today. Friends, I don't have answers. We don't have a clear picture. But a part of the point of this story of Jesus' transfiguration is that we can't always know what is coming next. And so I wonder how we can challenge ourselves to look carefully. How might we be sleeping, closing our eyes to God's glory? How might we be trying to contain God? And how might it be that Jesus is ready to surprise us and knock us off our feet? How might it be that God's glory is inviting us, as it did with Hafez, to dance with the abandon at the sheer unexpectedness and expansiveness of God's grace? Dear friends, may we be followers of Jesus, who comes down this mountain with Peter, John, and James, disfigured, transfigured, and refigured, each of us, so that we too may shine with the glory of God, and that we may show the world the radiant face of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.